Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A new proposal sponsored by a New York State Assembly member would make it easier to remove a candidate from office if they are charged with a crime. The measure, if approved, could enable Governor Kathy Hochul to rid herself of her former running mate, Brian Benjamin, who resigned this week as lieutenant governor after being indicted on federal corruption charges. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Benjamin's resignation presents a quandary for Hochul in the upcoming June primary. Benjamin's name will still be on the ballot because it's very difficult in New York to remove someone even if they've decided not to run. Under current law, he would have to move from the state, run for another office, or die. The rules are not part of the state's constitution, but are instead written in statute. That means they can be changed, says Assemblymember Amy Paulin. She's proposing a bill that would provide for a special circumstance declination. It would allow a candidate to choose to remove their name from the ballot if they're charged with a crime, have a life-threatening illness, or have resigned from the office that they were nominated or designated to run for election. This is a bill that makes a lot of sense, and sometimes there's an opportunity Candidates would have until May 1st for a primary and September 1st for a general election to remove their names from the ballot. That would leave enough time, supporters say, for absentee ballots to be printed and distributed. Paulin, like Hochul, is a Democrat, and Democrats control both houses of the legislature, increasing the likelihood that the bill or a similar measure could be approved. Susan Lerner, with the government reform group Common Cause, says the current laws are antiquated and are designed to keep political parties in control of the candidate selection process. And the problem with our election law is that too frequently what you feel is the dead hand of Tammany Hall allowing the parties to maintain a stranglehold on the process, which is what you have in the nomination and declination procedure that's currently in our law. Republicans are in the minority party in state government. They argue that Hochul, who says she didn't know about a federal corruption investigation into Benjamin when she chose him, should not be rewarded for her mistake. In a statement, state GOP chair Nick Langworthy says Democrats in the legislature are colluding with Hochul to sweep their corruption under the rug and trying to rewrite the law to save Kathy Hochul's political career. Lerner, with Common Cause, says the proposal is not about favoring one political party over another. She says both Democratic and Republican state leaders have been indicted and in some cases convicted of crimes in the past several years. She says the changes would benefit the voters. Most importantly, the voters shouldn't be faced with a ballot that allows them to vote for somebody who's not going to take the office and in essence encourages them to throw their votes away. That's simply wrong and unfair. Even if the legislature were to change the rules and allow Benjamin's name to be struck, Hochul could not immediately name a new running mate to be placed on the June ballot. Benjamin remains the designee of the state Democratic Party. They chose him as its candidate for lieutenant governor at the convention in late February. The party would have to reconvene to choose a new candidate. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. So how about the news that erupted in New York, Alan? New York's Lieutenant mm. Governor Brian Benjamin now has resigned, and Governor Hochul has accepted his resignation. He was arrested in a fundraising scheme. The U.S. Attorney for New York Southern District, Damian Williams, issued the five-count indictment on charges of bribery, theft of honest services, and falsification of records in connection with a scheme to illegally receive tens of thousands of dollars in public matching funds for Benjamin's 2021 campaign for New York City Comptroller. This certainly makes it a little bit more tricky and Governor Hochul facing some tough choices now. And some responsibility because, after all, whether she or we like it or not, there is this question of how do you take somebody on who has all of this garbage hanging around him? You know, she could have done a better job. She's obviously an honest broker. Nobody has said one word about her being anything but that. Nevertheless, it is a very difficult time for her because now, apparently, she is to some degree saddled with him on the ballot, whether she wants him off or or not. And we don't really know the ins and outs of that. But in New York's election law, it's very hard for somebody who is running to not be running. We have seen it before. And he is out of it. And of course, he's innocent until proven guilty. There's no question about that. Yet there's a certain smell about all of this that is not very healthy. It is a very difficult time when you figure that this is a governor who came in with tremendous bona fides, she's from upstate New York, something we haven't seen for a long time. And now, like everybody else, she has a job that I can tell you I wouldn't want. We have seen Cuomo go down in flames. We now see this choice of a lieutenant governor looming large for her. I can only feel badly for her. She tried to do the right thing. She tried to have a mixed government with somebody of color as her number two. And we know because she became governor that that number two spot can be very, very important given a particular circumstance. So that's where we are. Nobody has made any accusatory remarks about her. The only thing is she's got to get herself out of this mess and get a good running mate. Yeah, if we follow it forward, I mean, you know, if somebody else wins that lieutenant governor's race and Hoka wins the governor's race, does that put her at odds with her own lieutenant governor in the future, potentially? It wouldn't be the first time, David. We can all remember at least one lieutenant governor standing up during a gubernatorial speech and not sitting down. Remember that? Indeed, I do. So Benjamin's out. The governor has to pick a new lieutenant governor. But in that interim, in speaking with Blair Horner of Nyperg, Allen, he mentioned this idea that it's the law, it's election law, that makes it difficult to remove a candidate who's already on the ballot. But if the legislature wants to, they could change the law. You've got the governor and Democrat, two leaders in the Assembly and Senate that are Democrats, super majorities. They could simply change the law, kick them off the ballot, pick another lieutenant governor. So your question then is, how come they don't do that? And how come they haven't done it already? Well, the fact of the matter is that the legislature is supposed to represent the people, but in fact, they represent themselves. And the closer it comes to who they are, you know, politicians, some would say cheap tin horn politicians who are always looking to their own benefits as opposed to those, you know, of the people. It should be done. It could be done. And frankly, David, it will be done by the time they get through fooling around. But it is not a healthy situation. The idea that we have a lieutenant governor who you have to get rid of. And when you start talking about getting rid of politicians, 
that creates fear in the very bones of the legislature. It means that if you are getting rid of, of a lieutenant governor candidate, what does this mean for me? I don't mean me, Alan. I mean me, the legislature. And that is something that the voters ought to keep a careful eye on. Well, many seem to be keeping a careful eye on, and they're not happy about it. The new Buffalo Bills stadium proved with $600 million of public money involved in that effort. Interesting, though, that when you spoke with Blair Horner, who does not like public boondoggles, had a different approach to this, which was basically, what can the governor do? She's from the Buffalo area, the Buffalo Bills he remarked, are the only team in New York. And what happens if she loses the bills? They'll be attacking her over that. Meanwhile, you've got the owners of the bills who live in Florida to avoid being taxed in New York. And again, all this public money being used. Is she between a rock and a hard place on that decision? Well, let me put it this way, David. I wouldn't want to be the governor. And I wouldn't want to be somebody who is making these decisions. Because what happens is, sooner or later, you are confronted with some very tough problems. To me, the idea of building some millionaires who live out of state a stadium just so you can claim that you have a sports team, hey, look, it's a business, business. And that means that they ought to be able to create the revenue they need in order to keep this thing going. But no, they want the taxpayers to do it and to handle this very tough and a huge amount of money. Let's talk about higher ed, Alan, and this that I think many people don't realize. The new state budget requires college campuses to set up polling places for students to vote on campus. Now, that's interesting because you and I have taught students. We have. And we know that they'll many times talk a good game, but when it comes to the election day, oh, ooh, uh, uh, I didn't yeah. get my absentee, blah, blah, blah. Of course, the Republicans are criticizing this idea, Alan. So they'll, they'll vote twice. They'll vote at home. They'll vote well, at look, school. if they do, they are subject to the law, and they could be held responsible, and they ought to be told that. I just want it to be clear to everybody that you vote in one place. This is a big problem. For years, we have debated as to whether kids on campuses should vote from their homes, like in Long Island, or whether they should vote in New Paltz or Albany or Binghamton or wherever. So now you get to say what it is. Federal Judge Neil McKern, I don't even know if he's on the bench anymore, but I can tell you, he lost the congressional race very early, and I don't think he ever forgot it based on the fact that the kids weren't allowed to vote from their dormitories. That was changed. Now, let's remember that New York is a democratic state, and Democrats will do better if the kids are allowed to vote from their dormitories. It's that simple. And so now they can. And I'm sure that when the Democrats sit down and the Republicans sit down, they have a different philosophy about how this should be done. Sure, and I'm guessing because it's closer to the students on campus, and I see these voter registration drives all the time at UAlbany, for example, that they will be more likely to vote. Well, if you make it easier, they will come. It is that simple. As you have suggested, students, David, are not always motivated to do their civic duty unless it's made easier. Now, somebody will write to me and say, Dear Dr. Shartok, you are wrong. My son is a good boy, and he knows all about government, <laughs> and he votes that way. But in fact, we know what the aggregate numbers are, and we know that it's disappointing. The older you get, the more likely you are now to vote. So true. Legislative Gazette, Political Observer, Alan Chartop.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Well, New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who ended a brief run for governor last year, brought her re-election campaign to Albany last weekend. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. James rallied at 1199 SEIU headquarters alongside some of the Democratic Party's top leaders, including State Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie. Tish and I have had a long, long relationship, and I take a lot of pride. You know, I was one of the first people to endorse her when she ran for public advocate when I was the Bronx Democratic County Chair. And of course, I was one of her first supporters um, when she said she wanted to be the Attorney General of the state of New York. And I couldn't think of a, a better person for us to be here to rally for. She's the groundbreaking, earth-shaking, Trump-busting. And we need her to be there for four more years. Hasty was just out from Marathon State Budget Negotiations. She has a tough job, you know, taking on, you know, a former president of the United States who thinks the world should be the way he believes it should be, no rules, but Tish is fearless, you know, she's dedicated, there's so many uh, words we can use to, to describe her, but she is our champion and our sister and I'm happy to be here, although I have very little energy left from but I thought it was important for me to be innocent. Other speakers included State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, along with several downstate elected officials and State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. She's a very caring person. She has a very big heart. She is a person of deep faith. That's what keeps her going when they start throwing bows and arrows and rocks at her and criticizing her for some of the things that she does. When you take on powerful interests of powerful people, some folks don't like that. But Tish always stays true to what's in her heart and to what her values are. And that's why in this very important role of being Attorney General, she truly is the people's lawyer. She is fighting each and every day for every man, woman, and child in this great state of New York. Speakers praised James' accomplishments, including her investigations into the violation of human trafficking laws on behalf of Filipino nurses at Albany Medical Center, and her investigations into former President Trump and former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. James told rally-goers she is running because she believes in equal opportunity, workers' rights, justice, and the U.S. Constitution. I'm running because they want to turn back the clock on the progress of women in this country. I'm running because I believe in immigrants. I'm running because I believe that diversity is our strength. I'm running because I believe that our values right now are being questioned. I'm running because there are so many individuals who would like to put wedge issues between us and separate us. And I'm running because I don't believe in walls. I believe in all of you. Yeah. James has no primary opponent. New York City Attorney Michael Henry was endorsed by the State Republican Committee at its convention. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and on Thursday this week, New York State lawmakers joined survivors in Westchester County to call attention to a bill that would give some adult survivors the opportunity to sue their abusers in court. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King reports. 
The Adult Survivors Act is similar to the Child Victims Act, passed by the legislature in 2019. It gave survivors of childhood sexual abuse a one-year look-back window to sue their abusers, in some cases long after the state's statute of limitations expired. The one-year window was ultimately extended another year due to the coronavirus pandemic. This time, the Adult Survivors Act would open up that opportunity to those who were 18 years or older at the time of their abuse. The bill was passed by the state Senate last year, but has stalled in the Assembly. On a blustery Thursday in the Hudson Valley, advocates with the victims' assistance nonprofit Safe Horizon gathered outside the Westchester County Court in White Plains to push for the bill's passage. State Senator Shelley Mayer, a Democrat from the 37th District, is a co-sponsor of the bill. This is so basic to our system of laws. We're not talking about criminal penalties here. We're talking about the opportunity to confront your accuser and make a civil claim for damages. And that is what our system of laws is based on, the equality of opportunity to assert your claim. Safe Horizon Vice President of Government Affairs Michael Pollenberg says more than 10,000 lawsuits were filed as a result of the Child Victims Act by the time its look-back window closed last August. Four of the state's eight Roman Catholic dioceses filed for bankruptcy, as did the Boy Scouts of America, at least partly due to a large number of lawsuits regarding sexual abuse. In 2019, lawmakers also expanded the civil and criminal statute of limitations for several felony sex offenses in the state. The criminal statute of limitations for second- and third-degree rape increased from five years to 20 and 10 years, respectively. And Pollenberg says the civil statute now stands at 20 years for both. But he notes those changes were made proactively, not retroactively. Meaning that certain survivors who were abused prior to 2019 still only have a few years to file a civil lawsuit. Pollenberg says as child victims have been given the chance to look back, so should adults. For many survivors, coming to terms with what they went through can take years, even decades. Donna Hilton, activist and author of the memoir A Little Piece of Light, says she's been surviving trauma and sexual abuse for the majority of her life, something she didn't really come to terms with until after her incarceration at age 20. Hilton says she was incarcerated for 27 years and that people often misunderstand the sheer number of adult survivors in state prisons alone. That 85% that we've been told for so long of women, young women, gender expansive people that are in the system that have been abused is wrong. It's more like 97%, closer to 98%. Why? Because people still don't talk. Why? Because people still don't listen. Assemblymember Amy Pollan, a Democrat from the 88th District, says she became a survivor at age 14, and it took years for her to say it out loud. I buried it. It was something that I never told anyone about. And I don't know that that would have been different if I was four years older. If you're 17, you're a minor. You're 18, all of a sudden, you're not. And I don't know what shifts or changes in a young woman's mind. Not that much. So we have not addressed the remedies for so many young women who likely have not or did not even come to grips with their own sexual assault. So this is a very important bill. You have my commitment that together with the colleagues that are here today and all of my colleagues in the assembly, I will be a fierce advocate until we get this done. Thank you. You know, for many years, um, it was the state assembly that moved the Child Victims Act forward. 
We're now in the situation where it's the Senate who's moving on the Adult Survivors Act. They passed it last year unanimously. Everyone voted in support. This year, the bill has already moved through the Judiciary Committee and the Finance Committee, and it's now heading to the floor. And it's the Assembly where the bill seems to be stuck. Uh, so we're hopeful that with the support of the Assembly members here today, that we can finally move this bill forward this year. Fellow Democratic State Assembly members Chris Burdick and Tom Abenanti joined Paulin at the press conference. New York's legislative session wraps on June 2nd. I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Advocates, including a former mayor of Plattsburgh, are urging New York state to place a moratorium on cryptocurrency mining and to deny a permit renewal for a converted power plant used for crypto mining in the Finger Lakes region. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. Greenwich Generation operates a natural gas power plant in the Finger Lakes community of Dresden. The facility, formerly a coal-fired power plant, is used to power thousands of computers that generate bitcoins. The profitable operation generates millions of dollars, and the company is planning an expansion. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation recently extended its time frame to make a decision on renewing the facility's Title V air permit. The new deadline is June 30th. Advocates are calling on the DEC to reject the renewal and on Governor Kathy Hochul to impose a moratorium on so-called proof-of-work Bitcoin mining. Former Plattsburgh Mayor Colin Reed led a virtual press conference Wednesday. Please follow the science. Deny Greenwich's air permit renewal before the primary and put a moratorium on proof-of-work crypto mining. Let's not play politics with our pocketbooks and our cherished economy any longer. It's just too costly. It's killing our environment and localities. While serving as mayor through 2020, Reed introduced a moratorium on new cryptocurrency mining that remained for 18 months. Bitcoin miners were attracted to Plattsburgh for its cheap power and used so much that local residents saw their rates go up. The advocates say using fossil fuels to support cryptocurrency mining runs counter to the state's clean energy goals and harms the local environment. State Senator Rachel May, a Democrat from the 53rd District, has authored legislation to scrutinize mothballed power plants being brought back online. I do have a bill to make sure that in the future, other dormant power plants are not brought back online without a full environmental review of all of the impacts from whatever the whatever the operation is that's proposed. May said she's concerned about the industry's impact on freshwater resources. We have these cold water lakes that are incredibly important ecosystems and to just take the that water and particularly that cold water resource to be chilling these plants instead of to be uh, supporting the trout fisheries and other other functions that they perform in the lakes themselves. I think we need to be thinking holistically about what this what this industry is doing and whether it is compatible at all with the goals that we have for the long term of our 
our freshwater resources and our climate. Dr. Robert Howarth, a professor of biology at Cornell and member of the New York State Climate Action Council, says the fossil fuel-powered Greenwich plant is out of line with carbon reduction goals set in the state's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. So I do hope the DEC uh, will, will act to not grant the Greenwich permit, and it's, it's just totally inconsistent with the CLCPA. Greenwich has touted its facility as a job creator that remains carbon neutral. After DEC announced its delay in making a decision on Greenwich's air permit, the company issued a lengthy statement. The statement reads in part, quote, We are willing to do far more than we already have done to further reduce GHG emissions and help the state achieve its statewide CLCPA goals. Notwithstanding the noise from our few remaining opponents, this is a standard air permit renewal governing permitted emissions levels, not a cryptocurrency permit. Their efforts to mislead the public and to cause our team members and IBEW partners to lose their jobs without any basis in law or fact have been shameful, end quote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2215. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.